your Bibles to Galatians 3. While you're turning them there, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Gospel Project. So we're in Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 23 through 29. So Galatians 3, 23 through 29. <clears throat> now there are two genealogies recorded in the New Testament which trace Jesus' lineage both of which are found in the Gospels. Matthew, the kingly gospel, traces Jesus' ancestry for 14 generations to David and from 14 generations from David to Abraham. He does this because he's emphasizing that Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, identifying him as the source of the blessing of God's salvation promised to him. Luke the other gospel uh, that records Jesus' genealogy is similar in many regards. He demonstrates in his genealogy, however, that Jesus is, is uniquely qualified to fulfill God's promise of salvation as the promised son, but he, he reaches further back, identifying Jesus not only as the son of David and as the son of Abraham, but also as the son of Noah and the son of Abraham, or, sorry, the son of Adam. And finally, and most profoundly, Luke tells us that he is the Son of God. The sonship of Jesus is important, not only because of what it says about who he is, but because of how it informs us what he secures for us, for those who are joined to him by faith. Now today, if you are not aware already, it's traditionally known and celebrated as Palm Sunday. It's the day when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the days leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now you remember in the triumphal entry that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That, or sorry, not out, on, on a colt of a donkey. Fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, which Brad read for us only moments ago. The significance of his arrival was not lost on the crowds that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. When they saw him riding as he was on this donkey's colt, Matthew says that most of them spread their cloaks on the ground before him, while others cut branches from the trees and put, the, put them on the ground before him. And then they went before him and followed after him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. On this, being, on this day, this being Palm Sunday, uh, it is something to consider that what the crowd celebrated was in fact the sonship of Jesus. Now we are no strangers to rolling out the red carpet for honored guests, but the actions of the crowd on that day were something entirely greater than a desire just to show Jesus good, good hospitality. They shouted because the king had arrived, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of the promise, who God had said had come and was coming to save them and to set them free. Peace arrived with the coming of this king. Freedom arrived with the coming of the promised son. And that freedom came at the cost of the blood, the blood of the one who rode that lowly colt into Jerusalem. He is uniquely qualified to claim the throne because of his perfection and because of his lineage. He is the son, 
the offspring, the one who secures the blessing of Abraham for us and for the world. We believe that. That's why we're here this morning. And as we consider this Sunday, what it represents, we have to remember that it is impossible to separate the blessings of redemption from the sonship of Jesus. From the beginning, God's promise of salvation has hinged on the arrival of the Son. And in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, Paul explains how that promise has become a reality through the coming of Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul presents us with a new identity, an identity that we receive from Jesus through faith in him. He tells us that when we are bound to Christ by faith, not only do we become heirs to the blessing of Abraham, but we actually become sons of God with Christ. And that is a profound thing. Now, in the immediate context of this letter, Paul intended the Galatians, the, Galatian, the churches in Galatia that he first wrote this to, to remember that they had been given this identity and received God's promise of eternal life through the gospel of grace. And he did that so that they didn't give in to this distorted gospel that was being preached by false teachers who were saying that you had to earn those blessings by keeping the law and specifically by being circumcised. In our context, in our day and time, this passage is crucial because it helps us understand who we are in light of Christ. And it helps us hope in this gospel of grace, which we have received through the testimony of God's word. And that's what we want to explore together this morning. So let's begin by reading our passage. And it's in Galatians 3, uh, verses 23 through 29. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither there is no male or and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, if you've been with us in our series through Galatians, then the statements Paul makes in this passage about the law, about Christ, about freedom, and about faith should feel rather familiar to you. We can think of this passage as almost a a sort of summary of the case that Paul has just made for the purpose of the law, for God's plan of salvation, for the glory of Christ, and for the hope of faith. But this passage is so much more than just a summary. Paul actually in, this, in this, these, these few verses elevates our understanding of the power of the cross, showing us how faith in Christ secures for us a, a new identity, a better identity, not just as children of Abraham, but as sons of God. 
So the main idea of our text this morning is that Christians find assurance in the power of the cross because Christ has made us sons of God through faith. Christians find assurance in the power of the cross because of what Christ has done, because he has made us sons of God with him through faith. Now this morning, we're going to be making our way through four statements that Paul makes about the law, about faith, and about our relationship with Jesus leading to this good news. And then as we've considered those things, uh, we're going to think about how this new identity that Jesus has secured for his people changes the way that we live and how we relate to one another, even how we think about ourselves. So I have four points for you this morning, four statements. We'll be working our way through each one of those as we make our way through this passage. Those, those points, are, are these statements are this. First, we see that the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian. Second, we see that faith sets us free. Faith sets us free. Thirdly, we see that faith joins us to Christ. Faith joins us to Christ. And finally, we will relish the fact of how Jesus makes us sons of God. Jesus makes us sons of God. First, we want to begin by seeking to understand how the law was intended to work for us as our guardian. Now, last week, we learned and we touched on the purpose of the law, why Paul says that God gave it in the first place. We see that it was given for a time as a guardian in anticipation of an offspring who God had said was coming to secure salvation and to set people free from their sins. This was the offspring that God promised to Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Now, the law, we've seen, had a part to play. It was in no way contrary to God's redemptive purposes, to his promise. Instead, as we read in verse 22, Paul says, "...it imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe." Now, the idea and the thought that Paul makes there in verse 22 is intricately wrapped up in what he expands on when he talks about God's timeline and his work of salvation here in verse 23, which is where we're taking our, our time back up. He says, and he explains to us, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, if you've ever been to our house, you'll know that there is a baby gate in the doorway between our kitchen and the stairs that go down to the basement. It is not there for any reason. Um, well, it's not there for convenience, we'll say. Uh, actually, it, it's proved to be quite the puzzle for anyone who's new to our house because it's pretty tricky to open. It's not there for convenience. It's there for protection. We put it there because uh, when Titus was a baby, we didn't want him to fall down those steps. That gate guards the path to the basement. It limits, it limits Titus. You might even say that it has imprisoned him for a time until he's old enough and mature enough to walk down those stairs by himself. It's, it's a limitation which we put there out of love, which one blessed day will become a thing of the past, and we will throw that thing in the basement. Well, I think that's a little similar to the way Paul speaks about the law here in verse 23. Notice that when Paul talks about the law, he uses the past tense. 
He speaks of it as a former thing. Uh, and he uses it to talk about the role and the purpose of the law prior to the coming of faith. He says it was given as a, as a boundary until the coming of faith would be revealed. Now we should be careful to understand what Paul is saying because he's already shown that the promise of the blessing has always been received on the basis of faith. He, he, he showed in our passage last week that um, what God had said to Abraham, uh, to Abraham that, that even before the coming, the law had come, that he had shared the gospel with him, that Abraham had believed it, and that he had been counted as righteous because of his faith. So when we read about this time prior to the coming of faith, we cannot understand that Paul is saying that there never was faith before Jesus came, since that would be contradicting what he's already said about Abraham, and it would also contradict what he said it means to be a child of Abraham. Rather, we should understand that when Paul talks about the coming of faith, what he means is he's talking about the inbreaking of the new the new age which Christ ushered in when he entered the world and secured redemption through his work on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. So the law came in the time between the promise and the fulfillment to serve as a guardian. Paul uses a very specific term uh, to describe the law here, which I think helps us to understand its purpose a little better. Now at this point in history, it was very common practice for well-to-do families to hire a slave or to have a, a teacher who they, they hired on called a pedagogue, uh, whose job was to teach, the, to, uh, to teach the children, to watch over them, to, to teach them manners until the point when they were mature enough to uh, take up a role within the household. So this person, this pedagogue, was a guardian, a custodian, a temporary authority over the child. You might even think of him as a babysitter. Paul says that the law was given to serve like that, as a guardian, until the coming of, of faith would be revealed. <clears throat> now, as a parent, there are many privileges and responsibilities that I look forward to giving Titus. I cannot wait until the day when we take that baby gate down and he can roam freely wherever he wishes. But Titus isn't ready to live as an adult. And so he lives under certain constraints for now, which, which govern what he's able to do. He's free to do many things, but there are some things he is not free to do because he can, harm, he can harm himself or harm someone else. Well, in a similar way, the law serves as a guardian, constraining actions, limiting freedoms, prescribing and disciplining. Paul says that the law imprisoned us all in preparation of the coming of Christ, who sets us free through faith from that bondage. Now, it's important to see how the law functions as a guardian, since, as one pastor says, the custodian or the tutor or the schoolmaster does not have the power to make a child's heart good, nor can he give the child his inheritance. If you are trying to get God's blessing of righteousness and salvation the way these false teachers were saying it was meant to be uh, achieved and received, then it's like asking the babysitter to grant you the deed to your parents' house. They simply have no authority to do that. They lack the power. No, the law has a different role to play. It teaches us what it means to be holy. It convicts sin. It prepares the way of Christ who fulfills it. 
Israel lived under the law which was given to it as a guardian, but they did not receive it the way it was meant to receive, be, to be received. Since Hebrews 4 verse 2 explains that the good news which came to them did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Therefore, he explains, they did not enter God's promise of rest. The law constrains those who are under it because of the sin that is within us. Our hearts of stone need to be replaced with hearts of flesh. And that transformation, that, that, that surgery is done. And it is received, it's done by Christ and it is received by faith. The law can only condemn because the law serves like a flashlight to, to shine light on our corruption, to show us the rebellion that is within us, and then to make us fly to Christ who sets us free. The law says, holiness is here, be holy. But then it looks at us and it shows us how far we fall from that standard. It shows us that we need to be rescued. It calls us to set our hopes on the one that God has provided to make us free. We need that Savior. We need that Son of the promise. Because as long as we remain in our sin, we are still imprisoned under the demands of the law. That brings us uh, to consider our second point this morning, the second statement Paul's make, Paul makes here, which is that faith sets us free. Faith sets us free. The purpose of the law was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, who ushered in a new age, an age of faith. When Christ came, he set us free. That's what we read in verse 24. Paul says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order or so that we might be justified by faith. The crucial moment in God's plan of salvation came to pass when Christ entered the world. Since he has come, the guardianship of the law is at an end. For, as we read in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I remember when I was in high school, uh, there was a law passed, and I don't know if it was already in effect, or if we just were, our school was just having so many issues that they decided to remind us that this law existed. Uh, with, but this law basically made missing school a punishable offense. So the paper, as explained to me, was that by Georgia state law, your parents could be prosecuted if you didn't go to school. Now, I'm all for education. I'm all for the benefits of learning. I have spent most of my life in school. But something about that threat made high school feel less like a privilege to me and really more like a hostage situation. The law of the state compelled me to be there, whether I wanted to be there or not. But the law didn't make me want to be there. Actually, in a way, it made me want to rebel. Even though I knew that the education I was receiving was crucial if I wanted to do anything with my life. The law felt like a burden because of the way it imprisoned me under a threat. God's law is a delight. His word of instruction lays before us the path of life and freedom in a relationship with him. When we talk about the law, we talk about the most fundamental command of what the law is. Jesus tells us that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are good laws, but we have no power within ourselves to keep them. 
We break them daily. And therefore, sin, our sin, makes the law feel like an oppressor. Because at the very basis of who we are in our sin, we want to serve ourselves. We want to be God. We want to love ourselves. We want to put ourselves first. This is a, a, a scenario that we are born into. We are born rebels. And the law condemns us as such. It, tells, it not only tells us the consequences of sin, that it is death, but it enforces that consequence unless the payment is made, which atones for it. In Romans 7, Paul shows us that the law itself is not sin. Without it, he says that we would not know what sin is. He says, for example, that if it were not the law, that we would not know what it means to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. In Romans 7, verse 8, he explains that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The very commandment that promised life then proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But because of the sin that is within us, the law proves to be, um, to be oppressive. We need deliverance. We need new hearts that love God and love to obey Him. And that is why we need Christ. That is why we need His righteousness. That is why we need the promise of faith which entered into the world when He came into the world. Now, the night I graduated from high school, I can still see it. I remember driving in my black, my black Avalon out of the parking lot, absolutely thrilled because I was free. The law that, forced in, that enforced my attendance didn't apply to me anymore. I had a piece of paper, a diploma that said I was qualified and that I was exempt from the law that was previously over me. It felt surreal knowing that I would never have to come back under the guardianship of that law. When Jesus came, he came to redeem those who were under the law. And when his work was completed, the promise was fulfilled and the guardianship of the law was no longer necessary. It's funny to think that as glad as I was to get out from under the thumb of the state uh, and the thumb of my high school, the, next, the very next fall, I was a student in college. Uh, the difference is that I wanted to be there. In fact, I was actually paying a lot of money to be there. I used my freedom to come under the tutelage of a new school and under new professors. I, I became accountable to them, but I was glad to be there. I was where I wanted to be. When Christ sets us free through faith, we are free indeed, free from the demands of the law, free from enslavement to sin, but in that freedom, we come under his kingship. We come under his tutelage. We come to learn from him as his disciples. We are there under him as his free men and as his free women. Now that faith has come, we have been transformed and, and transferred out of the classroom of the law into the classroom of Christ. We live now by the law of faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit as he works in us. We live as heirs of a promise that has endured since God at first ever gave it, which has been proved faithful 
and the coming of Christ. We live as heirs of a promise of righteousness and of life and of light to know God and to love Him as He works in us. That's the difference of trying to live by the demands of the law and trying to live in the power of the Holy Spirit under the rule of King Jesus. One is an existence of death. One is an existence of true life. You can see why this doctrine mattered so much for the situation going on with the churches that were in Galatia. The Galatians had indeed been set free because they had received the gospel of Jesus. They had trusted him. They knew what it was like to have the Holy Spirit living in them, setting them free. But then these false teachers had come in and they were trying to bring them back from this school of Christ into the school of the law. And Paul is saying that because Christ has come, they're not under that law anymore. I would get arrested if I tried to get into one of my old classrooms right now. I would be a trespasser. And rightfully so. And if the, if the Galatians had left the gospel of grace they had received and believed to try to secure God's blessing, the blessing that he has secured in Christ through deeds of the law, it would have been a disaster. There's only one hope. There's one faith, one Savior who secures the promise of eternal life. And so Paul is here in this passage pleading with us, even as he pled with them, on the basis of God's purpose and God's plan to cling to Christ and to cling to Him through faith, the faith that sets us free. Now, faith sets us free because of the work of Jesus. And that's what we want to see in our third point this morning, that faith unites us to him. Faith unites us to Christ. In verses 25, the second part of verse 25, and then on into verse 26, Paul explains how faith in Christ removes us from the guardianship of the law and places us under his, the rule of his throne. He says, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the crucial, the linchpin verse here in our passage. To know that you are a son of God, even if you are a woman. We'll get to that in a second. Sons of God. It's amazing. Paul explains that the reason we are not under the authority, under the guardianship of the law, is because we have received a new identity through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul emphasizes Christ and how he makes this a reality for us. Paul doesn't say that you are a son of God if you just believe it, if you just have faith. If you were thirsty in a desert, it would do you no good to find an empty bucket, nor would it do you any good to find a well, even if it had water in it, if you didn't have a way to draw it up to yourself. Faith is like a bucket, which is given to us in the power of the grace of God which we then, by faith, lower into the well of Christ and then draw Him up and drink from Him. When we drink Him in through faith, we become participants in Him. His qualities become ours. We become something we weren't before. Christ is the reason Paul can say that we are sons of God. And when we become sons of God, we know that we become that when we, are united, uh, when we are unified with Christ by faith. Faith does not seek to strong arm God. There are those who make faith 
the sort of name it, claim it sort of faith, which is false, which treats God as a commodity, that if you believe it, it will become a, a reality. That is not faith. Faith is a response to God and what he has done. Faith receives what God has provided, and God has provided righteousness, that justification Paul talks about in verse 24, and he has provided membership in his household to be received through the conduit of faith. God, for the glory of his name, has set up Jesus to be the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who makes sinners and rebels become his sons. We receive sonship through faith in Christ, and that relationship of unity changes who we are. It makes us sons. In the ancient world, this is why sonship matters. In the ancient world, only sons could receive inheritance from their fathers. So it should not be lost on you when Paul says that anyone and everyone, regardless of gender, who is united to Jesus by faith, is a son of God. As we will see next week, a son is an heir. And an heir receives the privileges and the riches of their father as it is appointed to them to receive. It's important for us to understand the point Paul is making when he says that we receive this sonship through faith. Faith in Christ means that we believe in him, that we recognize who he is, and that we respond to him by relying on him to save us. Faith is more than just belief. Faith is active. It is an ongoing relationship with God. There are many people who say that they believe in God and that they believe in Jesus. But when you press into their life, you realize that they may believe in Jesus intellectually, but they really have no ongoing relationship with him. And consequently, the fruits of their life show that they really have more in common with Satan than they do with Christ. Jesus says that to enter his kingdom, you must be born again, that you must be a new creature. The Bible warns us not to be presumptuous, but to take care that we are holding fast to the truth, that we are indeed trusting Christ and in Christ alone. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus warns, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to explain that there will be many who prophesied in his name, who even cast out demons, who did many mighty works in his name, who will be denounced by him as workers of lawlessness and who will be told to depart from him because he never knew them. That is a frightening text. The will and the work of God the Father is this, that we believe in the one whom he has sent. And when we believe in him, and when we set the seal of our hope on him, and follow him as his disciples, we may know without a shadow of a single doubt that we are united to him because of faith. In verse 27, Paul appeals to the Galatians on the basis of their own experience of their unity with Jesus going to the very moment of their baptism. It is incredible to see how Paul relates saving faith with the ordinance of baptism. Now, baptism can be a very sticky topic. 
We can, we can overemphasize the relationship that baptism has with faith, as some do, who want to say that a person is actually saved on the basis of their salvation. But Paul clearly relates being baptized into Christ to faith in Christ. And he nowhere says that baptism is the way we receive faith in Christ. Baptism, like the Lord's Supper, has no power in the physical element to save or to confer saving grace. It corresponds to grace and faith as a sort of marker, as a sign. But it means nothing if there is no faith behind the sign. Paul attributes unity with Christ to faith alone. Baptism is a sign of that faith, an act of obedience in response to God's promise, something that is precious, something that is necessary, but not the actual substance that saves us. Baptism is precious, and so we should not undervalue its significance, since Jesus gave it to his church as a sign of the union that we have with him. Speaking to the Galatians here, Paul actually appeals to them on the very basis of the fact that they were baptized in the name of Christ to remind them that they had of what they had become in him. To be baptized into Christ is to put Christ on. To appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone before us into heaven where he rules, reigns, and intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father. Baptism is a picture of a spiritual reality. It is a response, a fruit of the faith that is already there. And Paul indicates that when you put your faith in Christ, when you follow him in baptism, there is something precious there, something tangible, a moment you can go to and say, I am a follower of Christ. It is something that testifies to your soul and to others that you have put him on. If we have put on Christ, then we have become something else. We are what the Bible calls a new creation. Baptism is important because baptism helps bring this home. I'm so thankful that God has given us physical ordinances to help minister to us because we are spiritual and physical beings, and God in his wisdom knows that. Baptism testifies that we have died with Christ to sin, and therefore the demands of the law are no longer binding on us. It testifies that we believe his sacrifice was effective, that we have been born again, and that we will live forever with him according to his very great promises. What a gift baptism is. But greater still is the faith that unites us to Jesus so that he makes us sons of God with him. This brings us to our final point of considering how Christ makes us sons of God. Something amazing happens when you trust in Jesus. You become something else. You become a son, an heir, a child of God. That identity trumps everything else. And that is what Paul is emphasizing here in verses 28 and 29. Everything that he says here is, comes as a result of the work of Christ in this age of faith because of grace. And we need this message now more than ever, I think, because we live in a world that is in the middle of a severe identity crisis. I have more to say on that in a bit. First, let's look at the result of Christ's work and how our relationship with him changes us when we are joined to him when we take him on in faith. Paul says that for those who are joined to Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is where the rubber meets the road for everything that we've discussed so far. This is where the doctrine of the gospel of grace gets put to work, where the reality of faith actually affects the way we experience the physical world. First, let's consider how this would have impacted the Galatians. What was it that the Galatians wanted? They wanted to know that they were, in fact, members of God's people, children of Abraham, heirs of God's promise for his people. Now, the false teachers who had come in there into those churches were saying that the only way you could get that was by, was by keeping works of the law so that Jesus made you able to keep the law, but that the actual mark of the covenant and your membership in those promises was obedience to the Mosaic law and highlighted in circumcision. Now, Paul is saying something vastly different. He is saying that because uh, the t- in the time of, Im- of immaturity, in the time under the guardianship of the law of Moses, that that, that that period had come to an end since faith and its promises were now a reality, something that Jesus had put into place when he arrived, and that therefore there is no longer any need of distinction between Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female, but that all of faith are one, in Christ. So the Galatians didn't need the Mosaic law because it's been made irrelevant in the new creation that had been accomplished by Jesus when he went to the cross. The age of maturity is at hand. Ephesians 2 verses 12 through 16 says that though we were once aliens to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Christ brought us near to himself by the blood of his cross. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through his cross, thereby killing the hostility that once lay between us and him. Faith has come. And now the fundamental boundary marker for God's people is not circumcision. It's not works of the law. It's it's not waiting on the promised offspring. But it is now faith in Christ, with baptism being the physical display of that faith. Paul's message here to the Galatian churches and then by extension to us is that we need not seek approval from God on the basis of anything other than the effective work of Christ on the cross. To do so, to to trust in anything else would be to forfeit the very blessings of the promise since those come through faith, not through works. We can rest assured in the power of the cross of Christ because it's through that cross that we have received the promise and the blessing of Abraham. If you are Christ, verse 29 says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So as we consider these words and how they impact us, I have a few things, three things I want to bring home to you. First, if you are a Christian then the feature that fundamentally defines who you are is your relationship with this king, with Jesus Christ. 
when Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not saying that those things cease to become a part of our life and a part of our experience. But he is saying that our race, our status, our age, our gender are irrelevant when it comes to being an heir of Abraham's promise, the promise of salvation. I think that Paul's words here are good news to our culture. And so it's important for us to think on this and embrace this because the world is coming for you and it is telling you that you have to take your identity in your victimhood, that you have to take your identity in who you are, who your parents were, who your background is, and that is false. Because the gospel says that you have a greater identity. And the good news of the gospel is that this identity is for all who believe. So no matter what your life has put you through, whether you have lived a life of suffering, whether you have lived a life of prosperity and privilege, the gospel is for you. Because without this gospel, you are under the law and under condemnation. And with this gospel, you are set free and you are given a new identity of an heir with Christ. There is nothing better than that. And so Christian, the time has come You need to bury yourself in this because a storm is coming. And if you are not founded on this rock, you will be overwhelmed. But at the same time, as you dig deeper, the tree of your life should flourish and hold out fruit of the gospel to other people in your life because there are many people in our community who don't know this and who don't believe it. And they want to know that their life matters. And it does because Christ died for them. And so it is your responsibility as a child of this king to share that good news with them no matter what happens. Because Christ is worthy. And the promise of this goes on for eternity. This gospel offers us something that is a firm rock we can take so that we can take our stand in the midst of the confusion of this world. Because Jesus offers us a new and a better identity than we have without him. He offers salvation and he secures salvation for all who join themselves to him through faith. You know, I have been on the other side of the world. I have been with believers who I never knew existed. And I have experienced literally what Paul means when he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. I can walk up to somebody who doesn't speak a lick of English. And if they know Jesus, there is a bond of fellowship that unites us together as one believer. Whether we speak the same language, whether we make the same amount of money, whether we're single, whether we're married. When you put on Christ, you have been made one with him. And that is the thing that is most precious. And that is the thing that brings us together as one. You look at the faces of people around you in this room right now. If we were on the street, we'd probably walk past each other and wouldn't say a word. But because of this identity, I can say to you, if you are in Christ, you are one. And that is a glorious thing. You are more than your circumstances. You are more than your history. You are more than your parents, your town, your country, your skin color, your suffering, and your triumphs. If you are in Christ, then you are a son of God, a child of the promise. And nothing can hold a candle to that. Nothing can make life more precious than that reality. Nothing can offer so much hope in the midst of prosperity and in the midst of need. So plug into that. Second thought I have for you this morning from this. 
is that we should know that though Christians are in fact united together in one faith, in one hope, under one Lord, joined together in one baptism, that doesn't mean that all of our distinctions have disappeared. We all have different experiences. We all have unique inroads to the path of grace. Some of us were saved from an early age. Some of us were saved late in life. Some of us haven't yet to believe the gospel. We have different experiences. And the kingdom of God is like a mosaic that is made up from many people of many nations, of many different social statuses, even different periods of time. We don't all have the same roles. We're not all called to fight the same battles. We're not all given the same resources. We're not given all the same gifts and talents. But God's kingdom is ruled by one Lord, and we have one faith that makes us one. And so the kingdom of God is is made up of a diverse people, like a stained glass window is made of, of glass pieces that are of all shapes and all colors, but they exist in harmony and unity together. So as the light of grace shines through the church, it depicts the glory of Christ. That is our place. And so we must be careful not to presume that we ought to have what God has given to someone else. Since we all have unique roles to play as members of the body of Christ, each with our significant uh, and precious experiences, but each bound together under one precious Lord. Finding a way to balance uh, unity and diversity in the body of Christ can be a challenge. But if we are one in faith in Christ, we must strive to bear with one another, treasuring the body of Christ and the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters above our own needs and above our own preferences and above our own desires. The third thing that brings us to consider is this, that we must treat each other as sons of God. Treat each other as sons of God. James, too, warns us not to show partiality as we hold to this faith. He says that if we pay attention to the needs of the rich and neglect the poor, then we have become judges with evil thoughts. It's easy to love somebody who can do something for you. It's hard to love somebody who who needs something from you. And yet we're called to love each other equally because of the the nature of this new identity. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis' The Chronicles of Narnia, then you'll know the Christ figure, Aslan, the, the lion, always refers to the main characters, those children who were transported to Narnia for different reasons at different times, either as sons of Adam or as daughters of Eve. He never talks to them differently. It's explained that even though Adam and Eve fell, they were still appointed royalty in creation. And that title has been redeemed by Christ. In fact, it has been elevated since Christ is both the Son of Man and the Son of God, and He has made all who are joined to Him by faith sons of God with Him. So as you look at a fellow believer, you should see them in light of that reality. It will help you love people who are hard to love better. And it will help you, it will help you from worshiping people who you want to be a part of your life and making them too much of a priority, even a priority that is over Christ. Look at people through this lens, through this new identity. You must never look on another person, especially a fellow believer, without taking into account the regal significance of who they are in Christ. It is a foul foul thing for us to undervalue one for whom Christ died. 
Every life is significant. Every soul is precious. If in Christ we are all one, then we must treat each other with the dignity that is appropriate for sons and daughters of God. Even those who we struggle to love, we must strive to see with the eyes of Christ who loved us and who gave himself for us to redeem us from our sins and to make us new. That is the reality of the new identity we have in Christ. So the work of Christ is a marvelous thing, isn't it? Before faith came, we were in captivity. But Christ has come, and with him has dawned the new age of faith. To him be glory in heaven and on earth and in the church forever. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, it is an astonishing thing to read the words of Paul here when he says that if we are in Christ, not only were we made new, not only have we been rescued from sin, but that we've been made your sons. What a powerful message of adoption this is. Father, we're still figuring out what it means to be called that. We're still growing in in the maturity of our faith. Father, our, our cry to you this morning is to help us embrace this identity by which you, this title which you have given to us. To live under the the kingship of Christ gladly, finding joy and, 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 and promise and faith in Him. Help us, Father, to bear fruits of faithfulness as we live this faith out towards one another and as t- towards the loss that we, you bring into our life. Father, you've put us here for a reason. You've put us here in this body for a reason. And that reason is making much of Jesus. And, and Father, we can't make much of Him if we're not united to Him by faith. And I pray, Father, that you would give us ownership of Christ, which is able to withstand the storms of this age we live in. Help us to to embrace the promises uh, as a reality that delivers us uh, from this present evil age. And help us to hold out the hope of righteousness to others, to those whom you bring into our lives. Help us to live as the sons of God and not just to claim the title. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.